this happens all the time. You know, what what is the Reformation about? Well, it's about saying that Roman Catholicism does not control how people define Christianity, and maybe there needs to be an alternative form. And all I want to say is that just as Protestants could draw on the history of Christianity to critique the church, uh, certainly primitive Christianity, I'm really trying the same move with respect to liberalism and saying that, you know, Cold War liberalism is worth denouncing because it betrayed liberalism. Welcome, listener, to another instalment of New Working in Intellectual History. Regular listeners will know that we are produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews, Scotland. Intellectualhistory.net is the website, intellectualhistoryoneword.net. I'm your host for this episode, Robin Mills. And it is a delight to be joined by Samuel Moyne, Chancellor Kent Professor of Law and History at Yale University. Hello, Sam. How are we doing? Doing well. Nice to see you. Thank you very much for doing this for us. And we're here to talk about Sam's new book, published by Yale University Press. It came out in the UK, I think, in October, maybe November 2023, maybe earlier in the US, entitled Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. So let's start with the very first sentence on the very first page. It stands on its own. It's not part of a paragraph. It's just a very bold sentence. Cold War liberalism was a catastrophe for liberalism. Can we begin first then with what you understand Cold War liberalism to be? And then the catastrophe bit is sort of the the thesis, the argument of the book, right? And maybe if you give us a very broad overview of the catastrophic quality of Cold War liberalism. Well, I thought I'd tried getting my reader's attention. uh, And it, it, it refers to a period concept. I didn't invent it. It's widely used, actually, by uh fans of Cold War liberals um, like Isaiah Berlin and others, and as well as by those who are critical of them, who who did forge that phrase Cold War liberalism, but have retreated mostly. Most of the literature about uh, the intellectuals who were the philosophical giants of Cold War liberalism is laudatory, and it has been for decades. And so I thought in response to this fact, it was worth, um, you know, raising the volume at the very beginning. Um, And uh, I don't know, it's not typical for me, but, you know, just to uh, make the polemical intentions of the book clear from the very first. Now, as a, a period concept, I assume we think that there's something called liberalism, uh, and we could have a big dispute about what it is. And uh, all I'm committed to is that there was change over time around the middle of the 20th century. And I characterize that change in various ways, but it's mostly about a critique of the sources that earlier liberals claimed as their own and a substitution of new ones. That's really at the center of this book, but it goes along with doctrinal changes. What I tend to think of as a kind of libertarianization of liberalism, uh, a focus on private freedom 
uh, from interference by outsiders and especially the state as as the core of what liberals stand for. And I try to suggest that this was at least new or, you know, made dominant where it had been recessive and at least many quarters and it had fateful consequences. So that's the catastrophic part that maybe against the intentions of some of the founders of Cold War liberalism, the what it's done to our our world, I think, has been on the catastrophic side. And I thought it was worth bringing out um, not so much their intentions as how that could happen beyond their intentions for their doctrines to have such baleful effects. That's uh, fantastic. So let's do, I mean, you've, you've sort of um, alluded to it there, but I wonder, wonder if we could push a bit further on the why question. And in the epilogue, you position the book as a, a response to, and these are my words, yes. <laughs> I think you've hinted at them, but these are my words, are kind of the defensive and unambitious and hopeless quality of con- a lot of contemporary liberalism. Hopeless in the sense of not having a sense of what a po- more positive future might look yes. like. Could you tell us a little bit more about what's been wrong with liberalism you know, I was going to pick a date at random, maybe 2016, but the malaise goes back right. further than that. But yeah, you're right. responding very explicitly to the current standing of liberalism now. I wonder if you could go yes. to a bit of depth there, please. Well, so the framing is American, um, not that there wasn't a Brexit vote in the United Kingdom just before the uh, you know shocking election of Donald Trump, but that latter vote... Um, precipitated a kind of wide-ranging debate about whether liberalism had a future. And actually, it's being reactivated now since Trump seems to be in position uh, to get nominated again and possibly win in 2024. And in part, it was the doing of a, a political theorist named Patrick Deneen, who scored a kind of bestseller in writing a, a, a text uh, you know, called uh, Why Liberalism Failed. And I understood my project, which you know consisted originally of some lectures at Oxford, um, at, as you know, intervening in the debate about what's happened to liberalism, whether it failed, whether it has a future. And my basic claim is that liberalism did go wrong at some point and became uh, something that at least presents itself on many occasions as embattled. Uh, and unable to beat its enemies, but should still forthrightly face them, never look within for um, kind of mistakes that might have precipitated opposition. The phrase that you use, I think referring to what you've just said uh, throughout the book, is the emergency mindset. Is that right? Yes, yes. Which is legitimate in some contexts, and and yet if it's if it's the general posture of of something, you begin to ask, well, why is the sky constantly falling on you? Why are you in a perpetual emergency? How do you purport to, you know, uh, extricate yourself from a kind of permanent crisis? And I haven't heard those answers on offer from not so much the Cold War liberals themselves who were facing the Soviet Union and, you know, later, you know, some of its more, you know, um, you, you kind of chronologically um, local successors, including, you know, 
the the student movements of the 1960s but in my lifetime you know which has been since then um the the permanent emergency mindset seems to almost be a kind of rut uh or maybe even a familiar um you know kind of a, emotional position for those who want to abjure the need for reforms facing critics and just claim that if liberalism as we know it is not renewed that you know tyranny will result okay now the main body of the book um takes the form of chapters on specific authors right and their contribution to mid-20th century anglo-american uh, political thought your cast of cold war liberals runs cy berlin karl popper gertrude himmelfarb hannah event as a sort of fellow traveler we might come back to that uh, later. And Lionel Trilling. There are other people who turn up along the way too, like Herbert Butterfield and so on. And I'm interested in the role that Judith Sklar plays in your in your story. She's sort of someone you're quite sympathetic to. She's almost, I don't know if you'd put it like this, but she's sort of the heroine, <laughs> the heroine of the tale. Now, I, the nature of a, a podcast is that we're going to, I'm going to um, be very crude with how we can reduce your argument down to a series of specific positions. But I think each one of those authors, it could be that you could you associate with a specific, I don't know whether you would accept this as the right language, but sort of a failing, a misstep in liberal uh, political thought. And I'd like to go through the, the five big ones and then yes. sort of summarise them, but also maybe um, there might be that the negative consequences of them are obvious as you describe them, but uh, yeah, making clear what the negative consequences of these uh, missteps, these positions were. So let's start with Isaiah Berlin, the very catty <laughs> Isaiah Berlin, and his rejection of. I mean, there's lots of things you talk about with Berlin, but one of the prominent themes is his rejection of the Enlightenment and also Romanticism as something that could be appealed to by liberals. I wondered if you could flesh that out for us, please. So he he's clearly the kind of leading uh, target of the book just because he has been canonized as the leading Cold War liberal. Uh, and what interested me is that Judith Sklar, when, when she was his student, uh, uh, when he visited Harvard University in the early 1950s and taught a class on the Enlightenment, um, ended up very critical of a position very much like his for, um, in a sense, uh, abandoning the Enlightenment. Uh, and uh, this was a phase in her career when she was not yet uh, herself a kind of Cold War liberal uh, associated with the so-called liberalism of fear, a phrase she coined it, uh, it, just before the Cold War was about to end. Um, and I use her to look at how Berlin, indeed, across the 1950s, became more and more caustic and withering about the Enlightenment, essentially as having provided the script for communism and later the Soviet Union. And in a sense, relinquishing liberalism's claims on the Enlightenment for itself. Uh, now, with Romanticism, I'll, I uh, which is the topic of the chapter that's specifically about Berlin, I'm I'm trying to be more empathetic and even forgiving of Berlin because while all the Cold War liberals and Schlar do reject Romanticism for various reasons, um, Berlin showed a kind of soft spot um, at, for it 
you know, not just that he considered it an epic making transformation that uh, allowed even liberals to forge a, a, a distinctive vision of liberal politics um, for its, you know, for setting up the possibility of cre a creative life. Um, but also, you know, um, maybe came closer to accepting what uh, Berlin called positive freedom, you know, uh, in in ways that have not been remembered. So the 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 chapter culminates in Berlin's you know relatively well known engagement with John Stuart Mill, and basically I try to argue that Berlin was comparatively very sensitive to the fact that in its founding in the early 19th century, liberals were more perfectionist than tolerationist in the jargon of contemporary political theory. They said liberals stand um, like Plato and Aristotle did for the belief that there's a highest life for human beings. It's just that after the Romantic Revolution, it's one that's about self-creation, you know, in subjectivist terms. And uh, and yet Berlin continues, how could he um, reconcile this commitment with his own libertarianism, you know, about limiting government in texts like On Liberty? And in a sense, I think Berlin was talking about himself because Cold War liberals didn't embrace a very libertarian view about the state uh, and about the terms of collective life more generally. Freedom was private and it was defined against public authority. Um, and interference by, uh, you know, uh, outsiders to whatever one's private, um, you know, life was to be. And yet Berlin didn't wrestle in the way that Mill did with, you know, this, the the importance potentially of the state, of the public in consecrating this highest ideal for liberals. So all that's to say Berlin is, is kind of the hero, sometimes anti-hero of the book, maybe even more than Schlar, because um, the Romanticism chapter shows that he really did believe in a form of liberalism we've lost. It's just that he didn't think it was viable in the 20th century. He thought the Soviets had claimed not just the Enlightenment, but the whole idea of a state that could emancipate and make uh, free for creative life. And so he rejected in a way, the very liberalism of which he himself dreamed. Well, there's, oh, there's lots of questions there. Um, I'll, I'll try and ask two of them, and with apologies, I'll ask them both at the same time. Um, can we go a bit further about what, or maybe what you think the Enlightenment offers a liberal in the beginning of the 21st century? It's taken a bit of a battering, the Enlightenment, in yes. recent decades. Um, so I wonder, I'd like to know what you think what the sort of emancipatory core of Enlightenment thought is, perhaps. And then there's a, a second question, which maybe is, well, you know, it comes out of what you've just said there, which is, are you committed then to an idea of there being, what's what's your phrase, is it the highest form of life? There, there is a good life, capital G, good life, to which yes. liberals in the 19th century used to want to push people towards, and then as you said, said, in the 20th century moved away from that into the sort of the tolerationist thing. That seems like when I first read that, I I thought that's that's quite an unfashionable position to hold. Yes, should we say? Yes. So yes. um, yes, please. Can you go with either one uh, first? But yes, sure. 
Well, I'll just be brief on both. They're both fantastic and important questions. So on the Enlightenment, um, you know, this is not purporting to be up to the level of the current literature on the Enlightenment. It's much more about what our ancestors in the era of the making of Cold War liberalism said the Enlightenment was about. And I do like Judith Schlar's definition, um, which in her early work leads her to embrace the Enlightenment and mourn its abandonment by Cold War liberals, which says the Enlightenment is about emancipation, specifically of human agency. Um, and, you know, for all our pluralization of the Enlightenment and recognition of its complications uh, and national differentiation and modern and radical forms and so forth, maybe it's hard to do better than hers. It it allowed her also to emphasize the pedagogical core of the Enlightenment because people have to be equipped and readied to exercise their agency and also to an extent the role of intellectuals um, and and yet I think um, there there is a lot more to say clearly that you know I don't think it's necessary to you know just forget how much we've learned since this period about the Enlightenment um, an easy move would be to reject these old views at the way that scholars have rejected Berlin's kind of almost, um, you know, entirely obsolete depiction of the Enlightenment as determinist and monist and so forth. And Schlar herself embraced a more nuanced view of the Enlightenment as skeptical. But there's something there, I think, in her original definition, which is essential for any liberal today to begin with. Okay, on the highest life, uh, you know, this is an intricate problem in political philosophy and you know people disagree about whether we should disclaim a liberalism that starts with the idea that there is a best way to live um you know john rawls put this in terms of a political liberalism that would disclaim the kinds of view that mill and others advanced of liberalism as a comprehensive doctrine um you're right it's unfashionable but the saving grace i think of the um original liberal view is that it's not like plato and aristotle's understanding of the summum bonum because of course the new summum bonum is not uh involving conformity to god's will or natural uh you know natural norms instead it's about self-creation I think the big difference is that if we just say freedom is private and, you know, self-creation is private, we lose the possibility that it's actually an authoritative public norm for individuals and group to exercise agency, to be equipped to do so, to authentically pursue interesting lives that, you know, bring about novelty. Um, and you know, when when um, liberals today say, well, believe whatever you want in private, any religion, uh, you know, spend your life, you know, streaming and surfing, I think they're abandoning their own cause because the entire reason for embracing freedom was not just immunity from state interference or public concern, but to create a new society that 
uh, emancipated individuals so that they would actually go on to lead interesting lives. And that's why it's so important to reclaim a kind of perfectionist version of liberalism, although, of course, it's subject to a lot of, you know, debate and question. It's quite a muscular version of liberalism. It's a sort of, um, I'm going to jump ahead to sort of the peasantist conversation I wanted to end our, our chat with, but there's a, uh, this isn't, again, this isn't, these aren't your words, but I, you could read the book as uh, basically calling out Cold War liberals for a lack of coverage. They're on the back foot, they're defensive, they've been drawn into a corner, right. waving a placard saying, liberty is in danger, a la right. you know, high church Tories of the 1710s, the, um, you know, the church in danger. They and there's there's a sort of a, a failure of will there, yes. and, and your argument is sort of encouraging us now to not repeat those errors and to have a um, to be on the front foot to have a sort of a positive sense of liberalism that you can go and sell to the world. So the That's perfectionist right. I mean, and progressive stuff is kind of are things that. So I'm not a historian of political thought. That was my training, but that's not my my mm. expertise. Those were things that I rarely would associate with liberalism. And you were bringing them back in and going, well, that's what the 19th century tradition was. And I'm, right. I'm demonstrating my ignorance, perhaps, by saying that. But um, that seems such a striking uh, striking thing. So I wonder if we could... Um, uh, so, yeah, please respond to what I've just said, but also... No, you, can... you've, no, please. no you've got the intent of the book totally. Uh, and I have little to add. I, I just think your know, listeners may you know not know that alongside you know perfectionism, you know, what was came in in 19th century thought generally a commitment to historical evolution you know which makes it unsurprising that charles darwin appears in that century um and so perfection went along with perfectibility and the idea that history was a form of opportunity and uh lots of people adopted that view um uh lots of people actually endorsed the view that karl popper rightly stigmatized which is that evolution was characterized by law-like regularities um but you know one need not and therefore my complaint against uh the cold war liberals is that they not only privatize the good life uh but they also um make history seem like it's a resource for totalitarians alone when liberals had also like everyone else in the 19th century claimed it as their their turf and i agree i think you've got it completely right that in an atmosphere where liberals cannot win elections uh or you know they win barely um at, or they resort to elite techniques of perpetuating their political views there is a great need i think to return to some elements of the liberalism that cold war liberals overthrew it was, you know, a, a difficult time. And, you know, maybe there was courage in being resolute in the face of the Soviet threat, um, which may not have been as scary, uh, you know, as 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 Cold War liberals saw it. Um, and yet it it led them to some disastrous redefinitions of liberalism at the theoretical level that have had a long legacy and I think prevent liberals from facing our present. So the chapter on Karl Popper, <laughs> I think that was my favorite one just because I, 
I'm, Karl Popper was one of the political theorists, first political theorists I read when I was a student and undergraduate, um, and I was a fan of him, but this is a bitingly critical chapter and it was very enjoyable. He emerges as um, <laughs> a narrowly read inadept, if I can, if that's a word, if I can use that, um, <laughs> with him, you're writing a book, Open Society and Its Enemies, which is a lot of dis- includes a lot of discussion of Hegel and Marx by someone who doesn't seem to have read Hegel and Marx with any degree of precision. But he's hugely successful. I think Open Society and Its Enemies is a bestseller. Oh, he's for hu- sure. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's over huge, generations, over generations. I think you describe him as Cold War liberalism's most influential thinker. I don't. I think that's Trilling has a different, a similar um, description later on. But I think. Popper seems to, you know, has a very prominent, has a very prominent role in the story, in the yeah. discussion. Um, he's very successful in criticizing something called historicism, which I'd like you to define, and moving liberalism away from, as you've just been describing, from that sense of things getting better. Right. Is that is that? Can we flesh this out? That's, what is what's, Pop, that's, what's Popper that's done? Right. So you know, historicism before Popper arrived on the scene was used by Germans to refer to the idea that most historians take for granted that, you know, meaning exists in time. And we, that's why we must, you know, contextualize anything, you know, and understand how it, some artifact from history relates to its place in time. And of course, this raises this skeptical threat that if, you know, that's the case what exactly can be said to transcend its time and place what if nothing can um and yet popper many years later comes and you know kind of ignorant of a lot of things i mean in fairness he wrote his main book on on politics in new zealand where he, he presented himself as being exiled to the moon and and it's clear we know like beyond controversy just didn't do the reading per- perhaps couldn't do all of it um given the state of you know new zealand libraries i guess um but he comes along and said let's define historicism in terms of the belief in laws of history um and i try to go into some of the ironies which go beyond just that he didn't really you know know a lot about uh, GWF Hegel and Karl Marx, who kind of are his bet noir in this second volume of Open Society and Its Enemies, because you know he had begun as a kind of leftist socialist in Vienna in a famous era in which leftists controlled the cities, and yet the city, and yet he ended up blaming his fellow socialists for losing to the far right uh, in the 30s, and eventually you know, losing the country to Adolf Hitler in 1938, which is a pretty bizarre, um, you know, reason to set out to rethink the history of political thought from Plato to Karl Marx, but that's what he did. And what's interesting is that his timing, though totally on, you know, foreseen by him was such that he could kind of set the, the, the terms of, let's call it public debate around the way libertarians engaged in the cold war um and it was it was massively influential especially in the united kingdom but not only there so this is sad and I, as you say as i said earlier it's it's effect beyond the 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 like legitimate critique of the idea of historical laws drives liberalism to renounce claims on history as such and i think it needs to make those claims 
uh, or uh, will not uh, give people a sense of a, a radiant future, if you will, that liberals also must promise to bring to be appealing. There's a, uh, a phrase that you use on a number of occasions about uh, the earlier version of liberalism being about creating a community of equals and justice or something like that. You, you, you'll remember. Um, it's interesting, sort of the description with Popper and Berlin, that's gone out of the window entirely. The sense that you're moving towards emancipating people. And I was interested, I suppose, there with the economic element, the sort of the welfareist element to liberal yes. thought. Do they get rid of entirely? And do they have... So I, I was thinking when you talk about sort of capitalism as a very pessimistic or very hopeless um, position. And then on my shelves, I've got Deirdre McCloskey, who describes herself as a classical liberal right who thinks that commerce is going you know they sort of do commerce kind of thing that commerce yes. is going to change the world and we're moving towards as long as we're left alone we're moving towards you know tremendous prosperity that's going to emancipate us like that um right you know, economic growth will emancipate us rather than political action um what yeah where what was the position on uh economic policy in the 19th century liberal tradition and where does it go uh, by the Cold War liberal period? That's not a horrible question. Well, it's it's a great <laughs> set of questions. So, I mean, I don't think anyone should disguise the fact that, um, you know, the, the default economic policy for liberals to their discredit for a long time was laissez-faire. Um, now, actually, there's new literature, including an interesting new book by Mark William Palin, which reminds us that laissez-faire was extremely progressive, um, was allied to feminism and pacifism in the 19th century. But uh, the fact is that liberals over time learned that actually they had been mistaken and, um, you know, new class hierarchy and subordination didn't serve the values it was supposed to advance, namely freedom and equality of all, potentially on a world scale. Um, now, that doesn't mean markets have no uses and that growth it doesn't provide circumstances for freedom and so forth, um, or that states could do nothing wrong. But, you know, what what the immediate antecedent to Cold War liberals and their biggest target in the case of Berlin and a few others is the so-called new liberalism, um, which is about severing political liberalism from economic liberalism and and chastening or disciplining the latter, which doesn't mean liberals ever got far enough in, in doing so. But the striking thing is that when you read the Cold War liberals, you wouldn't know that liberal statesmen of the time are building the biggest and most egalitarian and most redistributive liberal states there have been compared to before or since. And I think this was especially fateful. Now, Berlin, I think, uh, is said to have been a social democrat uh, in his personal views, but never said so. Certainly didn't defend a version of freedom that would withstand a kind of neoliberal appropriation. Um, since what else is the you know neoliberalism about than freedom of capital from private interference, especially public interference, especially state interference. You know, Popper's a more interesting character in a certain way because he begins a socialist and talks a bit about, you know, reform that would be acceptable um, uh, in politics 
uh, compared to revolution, but, you know, he attends the first Montpellier conference and uh, I think drifts further and further into the embrace of, of kind of neoliberalism by the end. So it, it, it's, it's really though their doctrines that most concern me. Uh, and if we do believe that liberalism ought to promise to construct a free community of equals, then I think at this late stage, having, you know, lived the neoliberal era, we should want liberalism to finally renounce laissez-faire and be very clear that a, an egalitarian and redistributive state is what is required for that community to come about. That's interesting. Again, I'm, I'm definitely speaking here of a sort of an interested layperson, but yes, the sentence you just <laughs> uttered seems so um, distinct from what I understand liberalism to be. Mm -hmm. It's sort of reflective of, this is sort of the point you have, you come back to it towards the end, that the Cold War liberalism position took over. It is the dominant form of liberal political thought. And there will have to be some wholesale changes to what liberalism is understood to be um, if it's going to have to you know move away from the Cold War position and towards um, a liberalism that kind of can incorporate what you've just articulated. It is, yeah, there's a... Oh yeah, I found this again, layperson. I uh, find it a striking, a striking uh, argument. I just want to go I mean, back. This happens Sorry, all the time. Go. This happens all the time. You know what? What is the Reformation about? Well, it's about saying that Roman Catholicism does not control how people define Christianity, and maybe there needs to be an alternative form. And all I want to say is that just as Protestants could draw on the history of Christianity to critique the Church. Uh, certainly primitive Christianity, I'm really trying the same move um, with respect to liberalism and saying that, you know, Cold War liberalism is is worth denouncing because it betrayed liberalism. I want to move on to um, Gertrude Himmelfarb, and I want a, a way of segueing towards her might be that one of the striking things about Berlin and Popper and also about Himmelfarb is that they they spend a lot of time creating anti-canons. Can you tell our listeners what an anti-canon is and maybe why the Cold War liberals were so interested in developing one? And then with Himmelfarb, the other theme, there's a lot that you write about in terms of Lord Acton, but I also yes. incorporate the, the Christianity stuff. We'll come yes. back to Judaism in a second, or in a few minutes, Understood. but let, let's do um, anti-canons and then the role of a kind of cultural Christianity. Is that fair? But I'll let, I'll let yeah. you, you tell us. Well, so as I as suggested at the very beginning of our conversation, the, the fulcrum of this particular book it, it, methodologically is, is to show how Cold War liberals renegotiated their own past. Uh, and I try to show that liberals had prized the Enlightenment, had prized Jean-Jacques Rousseau at times, had seen themselves as heirs of the French Revolution. Um, GWF Hegel uh, was not a liberal, but liberals were mostly Hegelians in the, in the let's say, form of their thought. And even, uh, you know, engaged in respectful dialogue with Karl Marx. And the point there is that Cold War liberals just purged all of these resources from the canon, conceding to the Soviets those sources. So, you know, they argued that the Enlightenment led to the Soviet Union, that Rousseau did, 
as Nazism to the French Revolution, obviously a, a little more than a dry run for, you know, Red October, uh, Hegel and Marx, you know, Popper consigns them to the prophets of the closed society and so forth. And then I show that the Cold War liberals substituted new sources for those they had purged from the canon or what I set up setting up what you rightly say I call an anti-canon. And the new canon, it consists of um, a, two new sources. One is a kind of Augustinian Christianity and the other is a, a, a comparable version of psychoanalysis for the more secular minded. And in both cases, the emphasis is on human evil. Um, so I would say it was more of a theological Christianity because unlike earlier forms of liberalisms, liberalism that may have emerged out of Christianity and sometimes engaged in um, dialogue with a kind of Pelagian Christianity, this new Cold War liberalism really embraced Augustinianism and the idea that even if you don't believe in Christianity, it's very useful for politics to embrace St. Augustine's view that human beings are beset by original sin, which even their fondest hopes can't lead them to credibly think they can ever transcend, for example, through social and political reform. And same with psychoanalysis, that if you adopt the view that human beings are have inborn aggression, well, even utopian hopes are likely, you know, a kind of death wish masking itself. Um, and so on on both grounds, I argue that liberals embrace a picture of of humanity as fallen and in a sense hopeless to match their political beliefs, which is that liberals should not overpromise. So the the Freudian stuff um, is associated with Lionel Trilling, especially. Um, yes. I think I think I, I, I've assumed that our listeners will know as I Berlin and Karl Popper. I, I guess that maybe they may not be so familiar with Gertrude Himmelfarb and Lionel Trilling. I know right. I appreciate we're halfway through talking about them, but could we just do a little few biographical yes. details about about those two and why they matter? Yes. So it it it's not unknown that. Augustinianism was central to Cold War liberalism, but it's most associated with a well-studied Protestant thinker named Reinhold Niebuhr. And it just interested me that I found someone else who I think was, you know, underrated and whose historical importance has not been appreciated, named Gertrude Himmelfarb, also American but Jewish, who traveled to the University of Cambridge in 1946-7 to study Lord Acton and revive him and wrote the kind of most important book about him maybe ever, but certainly in that period. And it's in this book that she champions him as, as the seer of a, a kind of neglected form of liberalism in the 19th century that she thought would serve well in the 20th, which was this Augustinian version. Trilling was more of an American figure, um, extremely famous, more famous than anyone else we've talked about in the United States. Um, and enormously influential there on generations and a best-selling author also arguing for a reformation of liberalism uh but in his case in in the mold of freud and at least a reading of freud that made um aggression or the death drive the centerpiece of psychoanalysis 
I just linking back to your sense of where liberals might go in the 2020s. Are you encouraging them to move away from a pessimistic view of human nature? I'm interested in that just like because that that could be a an empirical or a scientific claim that one would root in um contemporary scientific literature about what you know about what we know about human nature whereas your argument um more linked to kind of just to move away from that kind of pessimism i, yeah, I wonder right. where you stand on where we get our understanding of human nature from because there's a very well, there's... there could be a utilitarian kind of thing there we would get rid of trilling because or get rid of I Freud see. because it's very pessimistic and that doesn't help us. So we want to get a nicer, view, a more optimistic view about human nature, something that can flourish in certain ways. Um, do you see where I'm coming from? Do you accept Absolutely. it? Absolutely. No, it's a fantastic question. And, you know, I, I I will concede that, you know, in a sense, my views are as opportunistic as the ones I'm criticizing because it's not as if Himmelfarb and Trilling just looked out at the world and you know, human nature is an empirical fact. They had ideologies that they projected onto human nature and then made claims about it. Um, and I I, I want to call them out for doing so, but I might be doing the same. And, you know, I don't want to offer a, a, a full, fully, you know, Pollyannish uh, account. And I totally see the Cold War liberals as responding to their times of absolute horror in completely intelligible ways. But the question is whether they overreacted. And I'm especially interested in the ways in which their own appreciation of human turpitude, um, in a sense, was self-fulfilling. Um, and if we if we live in the kind of crisis-ridden emergency um, you know, mentality of the Cold War liberals will, in a sense, keep recreating the very evils that justify our own stance. And I just think at a certain point, having lived that, you know, repetition of Cold War liberalism, which can't extricate itself from crisis and emergency, um, and only ever sees confirmation for human evil, maybe we do need to at least experiment with an alternative starting point, which would be, you know, the possibility that human beings can be reformed. Um, and that after all, the last two centuries of modern political life have been radically unlike, thanks to the Enlightenment, the, you know, millennia that came before and so forth. So it's it's not like I have some empirical truth out there that I'm dis using to displace what the Cold War liberals said, but I do think we can respond to our experiences in the same way that they responded to theirs. Brilliant, thank you. I want, can we go back to Acton then, um, and we'll follow yes. on Acton. What does she, what does she find in him? Why is she so? Why does she put the effort in to write the best book on Lord Acton still? Well, she she hits on Lord Acton before she comes to Cambridge and rifles through his papers. Um, and it's clear from the materials I cite from her, her master's thesis and so forth that fundamentally Acton is someone who understood that political reformism is actually a recipe for, uh, you know, uh, totalitarianism and violence. 
and Acton, you know, was, was and is famous for saying, you know, we're fallen politics is therefore just another, you know, setting for our corruption. And of course it can get very bad to the extent that a lot of power is awarded to the state, which will just lead to absolute corruption under despotism at the limit. All of that's actually very credible. Um, but it it was a way for ultimately for Himmelfarb, who had been a Trotskyist uh, when she met her more famous husband, the, the other founder of neoconservatism, Irving Kristol, to, to explain to herself her own political choices, which were to abandon uh, you know, a sense that, you know, even liberals need to make claim on claims on progress. And ultimately she did become a much further right figure. So I want to see her as significant for using these religious notions to just take a very large step away from 19th century liberalism in the name of Acton's, let's say, dissident version of it. And then, you know, ultimately preparing the way for her to take another short step towards neoconservatism, which, you know, like neoliberalism has gone far to defining our own times. Might be getting into the weeds a little bit here on the, into yeah. the long grass anyway. But with um, Himmelfarb, I got a sense that she found one of one of us would have been her, yes. her thinking yes. in acting. Yes. And that she... Oh, I may be misremembering this, and that she glossed over those more progressive and perfect, perfectibilist uh, attitudes in Acton. He is not straightforwardly someone you can lift out of the nineteenth century and place into the to the mid twentieth. Right. Would that be right? That, that I be think fair? that's largely right. Although you know, I stress that unlike Friedrich Hayek, whom she met uh, on that trip to Cambridge, um, and who you know almost named the. Mont Pelerin Society, the Acton Society. Um, Himmelfarb, in her earliest work at least, emphasized that Acton became a little bit more progressive as his life passed and embraced even the importance of social legislation and its sentimental socialism. Um, and yet the the dominant you know, purpose of reviving Lord Acton in the middle of the 20th century is that he provided a disabused liberalism that would be able to face down totalitarianism with moral clarity. Brilliant. I, I, there's a theme that's come up a couple of times with your authors being left-wing Trotskyists and so on in their youth, as is their right and also their duty. Uh, and then changing over to liberal positions as they get older. I'm interested yes. in that. I'm also interested in the fact, and you're very deft and nuanced about this topic uh, across the book, but I'm also interested that they're all Jewish to some degree. Yes. To, varying, to varying degrees, they, they are Jewish, and their uh, Jewishness and Judaism in the background play, plays a... an interesting role here. So I wonder whether the maybe the early youthful left-wing positions maturing in inverted commas into liberalism maybe that's not as important as the Jewish yes. stuff but maybe we could um talk a little about both of those absolutely no they're those are great insights uh you know it's not true of all of them like Ber by berlin had never been on the left uh, he sees uh well he sees the um uh, the russian uh guard being taken away and killed by that is exactly. presumably killed by the by the um, revolutionary mob right and that from that exactly. point he's uh 
he's not he's not, of, he's not of that group anymore. No, that's true. Although you know, Schlar came from the very same city as Berlin. Admittedly, was born a generation later, but you know, fled in in ways that in the in the you know in the face of Nazism in ways that Berlin never had to do, and yet didn't make any direct link between those experiences and Cold War liberalism until much later. Um, but no, you're you're right that it, it it's especially in Trilling's case that I emphasize that a Cold War liberalism is almost a kind of therapy to explain to oneself why one, you know, moves so far from one's original commitments. Now, on the Jewish point, it it's not just my selection of six Jews or people with Jewish backgrounds. Of course, one could have. Um, chosen others like Reinhold Niebuhr, I mentioned, but it's just the fact that Cold War liberalism theoretically was, you know, predominantly a, a Jewish phenomenon. And then a lot of interesting questions arise, especially if you have some background in Jewish studies, as I do, about what to make of this fact. And partly because Schlar is such a great example of someone who began as a critic of Cold War liberalism, notwithstanding, you know, being born in Riga and being in exile after fl fleeing the Nazis um, before she, you know, much later became a Cold War liberal. I, I, I assume that just the fact of being Jewish or even the experiences of exile um, in the middle of the 20th century don't necessarily lead to Cold War liberal positions because she first rejected them. Um, and so it must be a choice. Uh, and that doesn't mean there aren't certain reasons why um, Jews might have to uh, embrace Cold War liberalism. But there were a lot of, you know, socialist Jews, even communist ones in the same era. So what I what I try to emphasize is that what was really distinctive in a sense is that most of the Cold War liberals embraced the founding of the state of Israel and um that matters because it 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 put them in touch with forms of liberalism they were otherwise concerned to reject, whether in their own transatlantic homes or on a global scale, since all of these people lived through decolonization. And those forms included things like nationalism and violence Um and a collective search to institutionalize a free community of at least Jewish equals in the land of Israel. Um, and most of the Cold War liberals embrace that without kind of registering that it was a very distinctive position given what they were arguing about liberalism or in relation to their basic skepticism of freedom on a global scale that decolonization you know, in theory, was supposed to be about. So one of the recurrent themes is that the Cold War liberals are, they take very seriously the Soviet threat, but they have also, if they are uh, all from a Jewish background to whatever degree, they are also living with a world in which the Holocaust happens. And that seems a very explicable reason why you would be as pessimistic as you might be. Um, yeah. So I, I suppose I might go back to the sort of the the presentist question about are you, is there any danger you're being unfair to them for their lack of courage or you know that sort of the withdrawal from the world given what has just happened that is sort of the 
the the world that they're living through in the forties and fifties yeah. is a desperately bleak place, you could say. So there's one place I want to spin. Can I also spin another play, which is a similar thing? It's a, it's a related point. So there's this idea you associate with this with Hannah Arendt in terms of what happens with decolonization that a lot of the Cold War liberals separate the West as a, I'm using your language, not, not word for word, mm-hmm. but your language here. They separate the West as a refuge of freedom from the poor, tyrannically ruled, non-white world. And your phrase, what's the phrase? The, t- the title of that chapter is uh, sort of Arendt as a defender of white freedom. Liberalism becomes associated only with certain states in the West, and the rest of the world is kind of well abandoned as just sort of not being, um, not being part yeah. of the story or unable to be part of the story. So yeah, the two, I appreciate that I've given you two big themes there, but um, whether it's fair or not, <laughs> being in sort of the ethics mm. of the historian commenting on people right. who lived through the, the Holocaust, I apologise for phrasing all that. And then secondly. Um, just the absence of interest in decolonization, which right. is um, deeply distressing to a reader in 2023. It really kind of um, shows the kind of the distance between yeah. us now and, and them. Yeah. No, they're both, you know, essential questions. Uh, so I can't dodge either. As I acknowledged at the start, it is a polemical book, even prosecutorial, just because the 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 literature as i received it is hagiographical and so if you'd like to have objectivity requires sometimes some demonization i don't know if all or most historians would agree with that possibility and of course it's ultimately for reviewers to say and yet i i would say that it's clear that we cannot conclude that the Cold War liberals' views were compelled. And maybe it's possible that if we presented the Cold War liberals with the long-range consequences of the views that they adopted for short-run reasons, they would renounce them. Uh, And so there's a lot of empathy there. A small point would have to be that as far as we can tell, none of these characters were concerned about the Holocaust per se, if we mean the Nazi killing of the six million with their henchmen. I mean, they were all very concerned about states that might do such things. Um, The question is whether even in their own time, they were overly concerned with that kind of state, which leads to, um, you know, the second question now, I'd say that their response to decolonization, though, of course, there was a, a a a racialist component to decolonization itself, reclaiming um what had been treated as a kind of cause of subordination, uh, namely racialized identity as a as a potential source of uh you know you know virtue. Um I I do think the Cold War liberals were much more concerned by the Soviet Union and the the threat they saw of the so- Soviet ideas and at least what they thought the Soviets stood for in the so-called third world of their time and and Arendt though not a Cold War liberal formally is is my way of investigating this question just because she's much more open uh in her her racism and racialism, but also because she's very clear that you basically can't have a free community of equals in poor lands. 
And she's tempted to just write off the third world as a place where, unlike, you know, at the, uh, the North Atlantic, liberalism just cannot thrive. And yet there's another possibility, which is that liberalism was what decolonization was actually about, at least in the first instance. I just interject there um, before you, you go back to Erwin, which is not alone in that position, right? There's a footnote in John Rawls's A Theory of Justice that you mentioned that he is of a similar position, right? That until there's um, modernization in right. inverted commas, the third world, um, what he is talking about is not particularly applicable. Um, and there's a modernization thesis stuff with some. Um, right. Uh, yeah. I wonder if there's anything else. I mean, that's a little that, different but... in the sense that yeah. the first view says, you know, there, there, there's no hope uh, among non-white populations or poor populations for freedom. The second view has taken seriously that uh, in the way that 19th, imperial, 19th century imperialists did, that there might be hope, but it's long-term and it would require a certain amount of abundance. And you did get that view in modernization theory, uh, you know, for example, in the writings of Samuel Huntington Rawls's colleague. Um, and I, I do think it's really interesting that those views affected the first formulations of a theory of justice where Rawls does indeed say something that is, is I think, usually forgotten, which is that, um, you know, third world states might need to bracket certain kinds of liberties um, in order to promote modernist modernization and, and at least sufficient wealth to have the two principles of justice. I just think that's a far cry from what most Cold War liberals in the earlier 1940s and 50s thought, which was more along Arendt's lines that, um, you know, freedom was threatened by the Soviets and there needed to be a defense of freedom in its current refuge, as you said, the North Atlantic, riding off the, the Third World, which I think was a colossal error at the time, because, of course, decolonization did not always go well. And it was in part because liberals gave up on it um, and then in a later period chose to use these ideas like modernization theory to justify you know war clientelism with reactionaries and so, so many other obvious mistakes with liberalism withdrawing from get proper engagement with uh, decolonization is the argument there you sort of phrased it a moment ago as if for example, Avent wasn't interested because she held very strong racist views. Is it that or is it um, the defensiveness, the kind of um, we're on the back foot and we need to protect what we have and not get involved in other things across the world? Um, yeah, where's where does overall, where does the where do the bulk of your liberals end up? Well, I think it has to be the first if you once you concede that all of these people and aren't more briefly in the earlier part of her life had embraced decolonization in a small part of the Middle East, namely Israel, um, where they were comparatively optimistic. Um, and yet that's a one off. Now. I think it is very significant that the earlier Cold War liberals were also not like later Cold War liberals calling for 
a, a kind of world program of resisting communism in places like Vietnam, they did treat tend to treat the North Atlantic as a refuge. But there's this hard fact that you know there was one place in the Middle East where they were in a sense for the aspirations of uh, the decolonizing movements of the of that time. Um, let's turn then to what you hope to achieve and where we might look instead. So the diagnosis is that the dominant form of liberalism, even now, is rooted in a deeply flawed Cold War liberalism that isn't fit for purpose. It maybe it wasn't fit for purpose then, it's definitely not fit for purpose now. And the prognosis is that liberals will keep on, <laughs> I like how you put it, um, They'll keep they'll keep on battling sort of like creeping irrelevance while not while failing to understand why and I think you say millennials and post millennials don't like them <laughs> that there's a sense that liberalism doesn't appeal to uh, younger people at the moment and um, that raises the question okay what needs to change and where might liberals in the twenty twenties turn um, other than themselves I suppose but where might they turn uh, to you know renew the tradition you know this is the ba- main you know set of reasons why I framed the book the way I did um I I I would say that in my political lifetime especially since the 1990s when I was a young person I've seen just a kind of eternal return of Cold War liberalism where it's just been very easy to say the trouble it, once again is that freedom is at stake a, against some malign enemy, you know, which just needs to be faced. So a kind of externalization posture, no self-examination uh, amongst liberals of the reasons why they have enemies and why indeed those enemies are increasingly within. Um, and you know, it it occurred to me that while, of course, there are enemies of liberalism, um, that they liberals have tended to take Cold War liberalism as a crutch. Uh, it's led them, you know, whatever you think of the Soviet Union, to exaggerate the significance of terrorism uh, or miscast, you know, noble causes like the defense of Ukraine against a tin pot dictator like Vladimir Putin, or indeed in our own moment to, you know, say that what what's going on in the Middle East now is a matter of freedom and its enemies, um, not just a murky politics in which liberals themselves have had a hand in producing the strife. Um, and certainly in my own country, where their liberalism has been on trial by the far right. I think um, youth on the left are rejecting it, but not seeing that what really needs to happen is much more liberal self-reexamination. And, you know, that's basically what the book's calling for. Instead of just the constant emergency mentality, take what might be the last chance for liberals to mend their ways and, um, return to some of the resources in their tradition and face the limitations of the Cold War rendition of liberalism. Is it fair to say, so the, the, your two final paragraphs, the penultimate one, 
points towards returning to the 19th century or to the early 20th century for there may be nuggets of gold there that we can discover and use. And then the final paragraph encourages us to do our thinking for ourselves. What is it in the 19th century that might um, might be worth recovering and deploying in the present day? Well, I think returning to the basic purposes of liberalism does allow for looking to the past, you know, reclaiming the Enlightenment for its emphasis on emancipation of agency, at least considering a version of liberalism that justifies itself as a successor to all the perfectionist doctrines of the past. Um, and, you know, thinking about how to appeal to people with a story about how freedom and equality are uh, can be created in in more forms uh, in historical time, you know, reclaiming history, if you like. And all of those seem like really important moves for any viable liberalism, but that doesn't mean that there's some, you know, version of liberalism that one just extricates from the empire and racism and liber and laissez-faire you know defaults of 19th century liberals as if it were uh, you know it didn't require thinking now okay i would final question i mean you have um alluded to this or you know talked about this issue quite a bit so far but I do want to finish on, I <laughs> I finished my training in the history of political thought about 10 years ago, and I became a teaching fellow, and I, get, I lost my life to teaching, and then um, I had two kids, uh, well, my wife had two kids, and then um, I've come back, and everything's far more presentist than I remember. Mm. History of political mm -hmm. thought, is, there's been a massive turn, it seems, um, towards uh, historians of political thought directing their work explicitly to contemporary issues. Um, you made a good, you made a, I think a persuasive case in this book for how thinking about liberalism, jettisoning some of the Cold War stuff is desirable. Are you, are there any things you're, any aspects of this kind of approach to studying the subject that you're concerned about? Do you, what do you keep in mind as you're doing it? Because I, I did, I mean, I've, I've alluded to, we, we talked about um, the possible exaggerations of the Soviet threat. That's easy for us to say now. Um, the sort of the moral judgment of past actors can feel ethically iffy from a historian. Right. You know, Herbert right. Butterfield wouldn't like what you're doing. Um, right. So as a practitioner, this is a more general question, I think, as a practitioner of the subject, history of political thought, um, how do you manage this? How do you manage presentist concerns while also still being a a good scholar because as soon as the scholarship goes then i think we're in we're in trouble at that point so yeah how do you respond to it's sort of you know it's it's really an essential question that we're all we all should all grapple with all the time i think maybe you know we we both entered the history of political thought at a very distinctive time when it was said that the whole field needed to be founded on a rejection of presentism, you know, famously. Skinner, uh, Liber Skinner. Li uh, li uh, Liberty after, before liberalism, the conclusion in that, that's the lesson, well, even, that's what you can do. That's right, that's right. And, you know, that's really, he intervened in that way as a kind of uh, clarification of his 
earlier 1969 statement that really the history of political thought needed to be antiquarian and that if there was thinking to, in the present, it, we were on our own. Um, and this book is trying to, you know, definitely embrace presentism, but not reject probity in the study of the past. I actually quite enjoyed getting more acquainted with Herbert Butterfield, and I appreciate his point that historians cannot be hanging judges. And while I've said that this is, you know, a a corrective book and therefore has some rhetoric of polemic and even prosecution, it's fully subject to the ongoing conversation of, you know, the disciplines where we care about evidence and fairness and empathy matters as much as, um, you know, retroactive judgment. But in the end, we can't abjure presentism because we're alive now and we're historians, but people too, who have to justify the importance of what we study to our own selves, but also to a living community and a future set of readers if we're have you know, the good fortune to be read beyond our moment. And all of those justifications can never sound just in the register of getting the past right independently of why it would matter. Right, fantastic. Okay, so the book is Liberalism Against Itself, Cold or Intellectuals, and the Making of Our Times, published by Yale University Press, because it's published by a university press in America with an endowment, it's actually affordable. And uh, Professor Samuel Moyne, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks, it was a privilege. Thank you.